Welcome to a special edition of Hill Country Institute Live, exploring Christ and culture. Today we'll be talking about prayer for first responders, the people who seek to serve us when we are in physical danger, have a fire on our property, suffer from an accident, and other needs which may require attention and extra care, often at great personal risk to the provider of the care we need. We have a talented leader as our guest today, Bayer County Sheriff Pomerleau. So please stay with us to hear from her about the inner workings and challenges of the Sheriff's Department and other first responders. Hill Country Institute Live brings you together with Christian leaders to talk about issues of concern to the body of Christ. We seek to equip and encourage the body of Christ to live a fully engaged faith with the heart and mind of Christ. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, and go to resources where podcasts of programs are available and also iTunes under Hill Country Institute Live. Other resources include video and recordings of conferences on faith and science, faith and art, and the works of C.S. Lewis. Our partner for the program today is the prayer ministry of First Presbyterian Church in San Antonio. This is part of a series on praying for people who we know and who serve us in various ways, including teachers, military chaplains, and today, first responders. Bayer County Sheriff Susan Pomerleau is with us today. Sheriff Pomerleau was elected sheriff of Bayer County in 2012. In fact, if you heard there's a new sheriff in town in 2012, well, she's here with us today. She had many leadership roles before her election. Sheriff Pomerleau, we're delighted you're with us today. Welcome. Well, thanks so much, and it's great being with you. Great. Well, I'd like for our audience to get to know you a bit before we talk about the work and prayer needs of first responders. Uh, you finished your academic training at the University of Wyoming. Uh, were you from the Mountain States, or did you just kind of end up there as part of a family journey? Well, about every eight or nine years, we moved because I'm a preacher's kid. Oh. And so when we would move from one church to the next, uh, then I got to see different parts of the country. But I grew up in Oklahoma City, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then Casper, Wyoming. And my first three years of college, I went to Phillips University. It's a yeah, uh, church-affiliated school, mm-hmm. affiliated with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's the church that my dad has served for over 70 years as an ordained minister. Wow. So you, you really grew up in the church, and that was a part of your life. Oh, yes. And, um, you know, you hear the term preacher's kid. Mm-hmm. Well, Actually, I was probably better known as a preacher's brat. Uh, fortunately, I've mellowed in my old age. Things can happen, can't they? God That's can work right. in us. Yeah. Well, my, you know, my motto growing up was, nobody will ever call me a goody-goody, and they couldn't. <laughs> you made sure of that, huh? I understand. <laughs> well, you also earned a master's degree in public administration. You were awarded an honorary doctorate. So your academic preparation set up your future career, didn't it? it you know, all of those things go together in uh, preparing you for life. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not it was undergraduate and living away from home um, or advanced studies, uh, all of those things focused on, uh, you know, preparing me for the challenges that I'd have have ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, once you graduated, something led you to join the Air Force. You know, how did how did that career path get chosen? Well, imagine yourself as a college graduate in 1968 in the middle of the Vietnam War, Laramie, Wyoming, and you think a degree in sociology, let's see, a county welfare worker in a county, I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, and here came the Air Force recruiter, came around to uh, my sorority, mm-hmm. and was making a pitch trying to recruit uh, young women to go in the Air Force. 
And what I didn't know at the time was that at the time that this young recruiter, woman, second lieutenant, came to the University of Wyoming was the same month that the National Defense Authorization Act had been passed, which changed two provisions of law. One, that women couldn't rise above the rank of lieutenant colonel or navy commander. That was repealed. And women couldn't comprise more than 2% of the armed forces. So I entered at a time when women were being brought in in much larger numbers, and I was sort of on the front edge Mm -hmm. of all of that change. Sure. So just I want to go back to some of the things about that career, but for you to become the first woman sheriff in in this area, first elected woman sheriff, that was something you'd kind of already been through in a way. You're right. Yeah. And I get that asked a lot of questions about, well, what it's like, what's it like to be a woman mm-hmm. in this traditionally male uh, profession? And sure. my my comment is, been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't know anything different from sure. that. Sure. And it's it's a it's a great help to move away from gender stereotypes and let mm-hmm. leadership run its course. In the in the Air Force you rose to the to the rank of major general. And for anybody that's listening that's not familiar with the military ranks, that's two that's a two star general. Yes. You had responsibility for, as I understand it, a large portion of the personnel of the US Air Force at the person Pentagon. I had the privilege of being the commander of the Air Force Personnel Center. Mm-hmm. And at the time We had um, probably just under 3,000 employees, military and civilian, and we provided all of the personnel operations worldwide for the half million military and civilian personnel. And so that's everything from um, assessing people into the Air Force, uh, determining what training they're going to go to, assignments, promotions, awards and decorations, separations, the whole life cycle of personnel. And so, you know, it was uh, a tremendous opportunity of leading a very large organization and managing a very large budget. Sure. And that really is what I do now as the sheriff of Bear County. Sure. We think of somebody out toting a gun, you know, doing law enforcement, but somebody has to be running the whole operation. Well, and I have the privilege of leading the 11th largest sheriff's office in the nation. And to put that in perspective from a people and um, dollar perspective, Mm -hmm. we oversee a budget, everything all in, of almost $150 million. $150? Yes. Wow. And uh, oversee and lead an organization of almost 2,000 people. We also operate the 16th largest jail in the nation. And today we had right at 3,400 inmates in our custody so you're a, you're a, in a sense a landlord <laughs> a landlord um ceo of a very big business mm-hmm. and so you know you've got to have people who are expert at managing budgets yeah. um you know forecasting requirements um you know a very strong hr component mm-hmm. um communications because Law enforcement, public safety are always in the news. Mm-hmm. And having those people who are deeply experienced and expertise in law enforcement and jail operations. Mm-hmm. So when, when you came into the sheriff's office, I understand there was an overtime issue. Money had been spent. So you had an immediate challenge 
to work that out, find the money to do the overtime you had to do and fill that hole in the budget. Oh, yes. There were 52 vacancies, and we were doing between 15 and 16,000 hours of overtime a month. Wow. To give you some perspective on that today, we have, um, we probably have about five vacancies. Mm-hmm. And last month, we only did, had to do 1,600 hours of overtime. So mm-hmm. 10% of sure. what we were doing. And, um, you know, there's always going to be some level of mandatory overtime. Mm-hmm. And so, but there's several components to that. There's what's our staffing levels? Um, what's the jail population? Um, you know, those kinds of things that all go together in determining uh, what kind of requirements there are in that sense. Which seems to be hard to project the jail population. You know, how do you, I mean, is there a, is there a, a norm that you can work off of? Uh, well, actually, it's when you look at it uh, year over year, mm-hmm. there are some, um, some pretty uh, standard um, trends. This time of the year, our population is always down. Okay. It starts to go up a little bit after the spring. It goes up to its height during the summer. School's out. Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. lot more activity during mm-hmm. the summer. Then as we, you know, kids go back to school, um, you know, there's less activity out. Then those numbers start to go down. And as it gets down toward the holidays, the end of the year. So it's fairly cyclical. Interesting. Every now and then there are some things like, for instance, last year, uh, we really saw a spike. And we're anywhere from five to 700 inmates less right now than we were at the same time last year. And what happened last year was the Michael Morton Act, mm-hmm. uh, which came into being. And so that kept people in jail for a longer period of time because of the certifications that defense attorneys and prosecutors had to do to certify that they that both sides had all evidence. Okay. So there are things like that that mm-hmm. affect the jail population and so those are things that you know you'd like to be able to forecast sometimes you can't yeah. But those are things that we deal with. Yes, excellent. Well, going going back to your, your personal story, uh, you, you came to San Antonio, I guess. At, at, were you still in the Air Force when you first got here? Well, I there... went to officer training school here at okay. Lackland. Okay. Then the first, next time I came back to San Antonio was in 1985 as a lieutenant colonel, and I was reassigned here at Randolph Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And so I spent eight of my last 15 years in the Air Force here in San Antonio okay. and grew to love it. And then when it was time to make a decision on where I was going to retire, there really wasn't any other uh, decision point. It was, I'm coming back to San Antonio. Well, and, and when you came back to San Antonio, you, you, you were employed in a, a terrific spot, as I understand it. You were with USAIA? Yes. Yeah. And when I came back, all I knew, I was going to build a house, and then I was going to figure out what I was going to do. <laughs> and had a wonderful opportunity uh, to come to USAA and uh, spent seven years there. 
uh, in an executive position and retired as a senior vice president in 2007. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I uh, also understand that you're an elder at First Presbyterian Church. So uh, how, does your, how does your Christian faith impact your, your approach to running a large department, you know, filling this important you know, role? In law enforcement, if someone doesn't have a strong faith, mm-hmm. it'd be de- very difficult to do the work that we mm-hmm. all do. And, you know, and take the different components of uh, the sheriff's office. Uh, you know, our deputies who are out on the street, who respond to emergency calls, the things that they see day to day um, can be all the way from tragic to mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, horrible things. I mean, and no one ever gets past, uh, no one ever gets used to things like child abuse, mm-hmm. child neglect, um, uh, you know, those kinds of things that are just awful when we talk about um, sure. what some people uh, do to children. But seeing someone who has taken their own life, mm-hmm. uh, seeing a murder scene. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are the things that they deal with. Yeah. Uh, an awful um, uh, automobile accident where someone is killed. Mm-hmm. And so these are the kinds of things that you've got to have a strong faith uh, and balance in your life. Sure. That brings to mind when I first became a Christian, an elder at my church told me that one of our callings is just to keep things together until Jesus returns. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like your your office, the people that you work with, are very much at the cutting edge of that or the rough edge of that. And and let's take, um, you know, our deputies who work as detention officers in the jail. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what someone has done, Mm-hmm. to get there. Mm-hmm. They're still a child of God. Mm-hmm. They are still someone who we have responsibility for them. And we may not like what they did, but by respecting them, mm-hmm. treating them with respect, one, it may be the first time that someone has shown them respect. Yeah. And maybe it's just that little spark that says, hey, Somebody cared about me. Somebody took enough time mm-hmm. to make sure that I was behaving or I was uh, following the rules or those kinds of things. And it may be just that kind of kind word that leads them to change their life. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this idea that it's the first one, I mean, that speaks to abuse in families. Mm-hmm. That speaks to falling through the cracks of our educational system at all. And that often is the case, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Well, you, you know, and talking about life situations, there, there are a couple of things in, in your life that you've talked about before and we've seen in articles, mm-hmm. um, your, your brother and your, and your marriage when you were in your 20s. And I wonder if you might talk about those, because I think that it gives a lot of insight into how personal things impact your style of leadership. Yes. And, you know, one of the things that uh, has been that I've realized mm-hmm is that it wasn't just my experience in the Air Force or being a corporate executive, but everything I've ever done or Uh that has happened to me, I think prepared me for this job. One of the things and one of the tragic things that we see so often is family violence. Mm -hmm. Um, 
intimate partner abuse, child abuse, elder abuse. And I'm a survivor of an abusive marriage. Mm -hmm. And for seven years, I was in this situation. And finally, I decided I'm not going to live this way anymore. And I know that um, uh, God was um, watching over me because I asked a very important question um, of the uh, counselor that we were seeing for marriage counseling. I said, how do I tell him that I'm divorcing him? Mm-hmm. And he gave me very good advice. It was an exit plan. Mm-hmm. Don't tell him to his face. Call him on the phone. And so I did that. He didn't know where I was. And we had a conversation. And through that conversation, he said that he, he told me he was going to kill himself. But I knew he was going to use every ploy to keep me in that marriage as he'd done before. No control. Yes. And I was ready to leave. And he said about 30 minutes into the conversation, do you want to hear me do it? And at that moment, I very quietly hung up the phone. And that's when he put a bullet in his head. Mm. And I knew that if I'd been standing in front of him, we would have just been another statistic on a police blotter of a Mm murder-suicide. And so every day, I thank God that I'm alive. And I think this is part of my role in bringing that message to women and men and children who are in those circumstances and make sure that they know that there are resources available to them because they're a person of worth. And no one deserves that Mm -hmm. kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. And so that certainly prepared me for a lot of the issues that we deal with every day. But also, uh, and you talked about my brother. We have uh, today in the criminal justice system, you know, it's sort of what I call back to the future. Mm -hmm. Years ago in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, we warehoused the mentally ill in mental hospitals. Many were drugged to keep them subdued. Mm -hmm. Or lobotomies even. Yes. Anything to to keep them under control. And today, it's sort of back to the future because we may not have uh, the mental institutions where we warehouse people, Mm -hmm. but we certainly have mental institutions. And oh, guess what? They're De facto mental institutions are our jails and prisons. Mm. Today, in the Bear County Jail, any one day, about 22% of everyone who is incarcerated there has some level of mental illness. And there are many of them there. In fact, uh, of that 22%, so let's say we've got 3,500 people in our jail, 20, 22% is about 700 people. That's a lot of people. Yes. Of that number, 60%. So you multiply that, that's about 420. 60% of those with mental illness have been in and out of our jail six or more times. Had we identified that they had mental health issues the first time that they were incarcerated, Maybe it was appropriate for them to have treatment as mm-hmm. opposed to jail. And so those are some of the things that we're doing right now. 
And why it's so important to me is because when I was in college, my brother was diagnosed with mental illness. He was, he was what we call bipolar. <laughs> and he was in and out of mental institutions yeah. uh, with electroshock treatments, with the ice, ice uh, baths, and all those awful things that they used to do. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it's personal. And so, you know, being able to advocate for better treatment, treatment mm-hmm. where it's called for as opposed to jail and just getting somebody in that cycle of the criminal justice system is something we need to do for our community. Well, that's very holistic, you know, because the first thought with the sheriff is a gun and a badge and, and, and strictness, you know, just this is the way it should be. Yes. And you're talking about a more humane a whole person type of approach. Exactly. Yeah. And that that really goes back to this image of God, that we're made in mm-hmm. the image of God. And that gives you a reason for caring about those people in a way that a non someone who doesn't share that value uh, wouldn't wouldn't even know about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you know, they're even from a um, uh, sexual abuse or um, you know, intimate partner abuse mm-hmm. or even child abuse, what we see is Individuals who are in the criminal justice system today, many of them were victims of abuse. And so low Mm self-esteem, they get into uh, either using drugs or they are um, or some get into prostitution. So those kinds of things that lead them into a life of of crime Mm -hmm. and they're nonviolent crimes. But often that starts off with them being victims of abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, in the, in the second half of the, the program, I want to talk in more detail about how we care for them and how we will pray for them. But uh, I want to go back to really a basic question. What's the difference between the sheriff's office and the police department? And, and what's the difference between a sheriff and a police chief? Okay. Because I don't think people – I mean, I don't – I would like to hear about that. Well, first off, uh, the sheriff is an elected position. Okay. A police chief is hired or appointed mm-hmm. by a city administrator or the uh, council. Mm-hmm. And so any police chief, and when you look at Bear County, there are 27 municipalities. Obviously, the largest oh. is San Antonio, mm-hmm. but Holotus, Alamo Heights, Terrell Hills, Somerset, um, China Grove, um, you know, so there are uh, Elmendorf. And many of those municipalities have their own police chief. The sheriff is a constitutional position. It's, uh, it is uh, addressed in the Texas Constitution. Mm-hmm. And the sheriff has certain authorities that police chiefs do not. For instance, and those three statutory requirements, the sheriff first serves the courts. And there's several things involved in that. One is they provide bailiffs for, in our case in Bear County, over 60 different county courts, district courts, the Fourth Court of Appeals, magistrates, associate judges. And so we provide bailiffs, law enforcement officers, who are in that uh, system. We also 
serve civil papers, civil process. We do fugitive apprehension for felony warrants. Uh, we uh, misdemeanor warrants. And so those are things that serve the courts. The second part, which is uh, just sheriffs do, is we're responsible to maintain the jail. Mm-hmm. And there are other authorities that a sheriff has that police chiefs don't. So that's what differentiates and a you, sheriff from... When you're outside of a municipality, that's your primary law enforcement area. Yes. And they're within. We have so. responsibility for the unincorporated areas of Bear County. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to need to take a brief break now. This is Hill Country Institute Live, exploring Christ and culture. Uh, we're speaking with the sheriff of Bayer County and learning about law enforcement, the needs of law enforcement officers and of inmates and other people that are impacted by the system. If you'd like to visit us, hillcountryinstitute.org is our website, and we would encourage you to get DVDs and videos there for Christmas gifts and uh, support us with your contributions. We'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you. 